Let's open our Bibles this evening to Deuteronomy 29, 29. Without any introduction but a couple of moments to recall where we were this morning, let us consider for a few minutes tonight further on God's will, man's will, and free will. Free will being a heresy of the devil taught in the Garden of Eden, promoted by the Roman Catholic Church and most churches today because they exalt man making his own choice for eternal life rather than God making a choice for his own glory. Right. I want you to come to Deuteronomy 29, 29 and read an important verse about the will of God. The secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. The secret things that belong unto the Lord our God is the secret will of God that will most surely come to pass, and it includes all areas of our lives, and they're God's secret. Your name isn't in the Bible, your marriage isn't in the Bible, your birth is not in the Bible, and all the details of your life, your birth, your marriage, will come to pass as the Lord God purposed them. Amen. I hope you remember from Job 23, 14, that Job knew that God had appointed a number of things for him, in fact, there were many such things with the Lord. The secret things belong to Him. We do not know this will. We do not know what tomorrow will bring. We cannot make our boast of tomorrow because it's in the Lord's hands. But He has given us plenty to think about, and it's in the book in your hands, the Bible, all the things that He wants us to do, all the words of this law that we and our children can have forever in order to do them. This is the revealed will of God. This is how God wants us to live. His secret will is what will happen to us and what we will do, but what we are to do actively is contained in His revealed word. And you want to keep that distinction in your mind, the secret will of God and the revealed will of God. The secret will being what He will bring to pass and the revealed will being what He wants us to do in obeying and pleasing Him. Right. Let's now go back to Isaiah chapter 10. Isaiah 10 was the king of Assyria. And how God used him in front... I want to go back in here and get a verse that I may not have made as clear as I should have this morning. How can God be fair when He uses a man to accomplish His purpose for His glory and then punish that man for the very thing he did, for the purpose and glory of God. How is that fair? Here's how it's fair. Verse 7 of Isaiah 10. I'm not going to read it all again because we did that this morning. Howbeit, he meaneth not so. He does not know a thing about the secret will of God. Neither does, doth his heart think so. But it is in his heart to destroy and cut off nations, not a few. How can God take a man, use him to accomplish his purpose, and then punish that man? Because God is not forcing that man. God is just controlling the evil that is already in that man's heart by human depravity. See, this man doesn't think, he does not mean to fulfill the will of God. He doesn't even think about the will of God in his heart. He doesn't even know Jehovah. All he thinks about in his heart, and that's what it tells us, is to destroy and cut off nations, not a few. He wants to be a world conqueror. 
He wants to be Alexander before Alexander arrived in the scene. That's what's in his heart. The Lord does not make anyone sin. God did not make Adam and Eve sin. They chose to sin. God did not make the Jews crucify the Lord of glory. They chose to hate him and, and sin. God did not make the brothers of Joseph sin when they sold him down into Egypt. They chose to do that out of the envy that was in their hearts because Jacob loved Joseph. And this king here, he never thought about fulfilling the will of God. All he wanted to do was to be a world conqueror. And so God just let go of that desire a little bit and let him go and prospered his way of what he wanted to do. God has never tempted any man to sin by putting a desire for sin in his heart. Right. James chapter 1 says that very clearly. Do not be deceived or do not err, my beloved brethren. Right. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is drawn away of his own lust. Amen. The Lord God is just able to direct those lusts to accomplish his purpose. It says this in Psalm 76.10, Surely the wrath of man shall praise thee, and the remainder of wrath thou shalt restrain. Amen. The wrath of man is just bubbling up in the heart of man. If he let go, there would be far more murderers, murders and rapes and other violent crimes than there are, because the heart of man is full of that stuff, but he restrains it, so that the only evil events that happen are the ones to his honor and glory, because he's using them for some purpose. This was a very violent act. The king of Assyria did not come in and negotiate for a sweet little settlement with Israel. He came in and crushed these people. He said, I'm going to tread them down like the mire of the streets. Now that's violence, but his heart was full of that kind of violence. God restrained it, directed it over here, prospered it in this direction, cut it off in this direction, so that it was his heart, his sin, but God accomplishing his purpose with that wicked man to be a chastening rod upon Israel. Those Roman soldiers, all they knew is they were supposed to go out that night and bust the legs up of those three men that were hanging on crosses. They get to the middle cross. He's, he's raising back his rod of iron, ready to crush the shin bones in half. Oh, he's already dead. He turns to go to the next one. Another Roman soldier plunges a spear into the side of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the Lord God arranging circumstances, letting the hatred of Roman hearts and the cruelty of an unjust system push a hole into the side of our Lord Jesus Christ, but not break one of his legs. And John the Apostle writes very carefully about that, saying, I have always told you the truth, and I was an eyewitness of this event, because two scriptures were fulfilled by that. Not a bone of his shall be broken, and they shall look on him whom they pierced. Do you, do you understand that? The wickedness that leads to sin always flows from man and from the devil. It has never come from God. But God did plan its entrance into the universe and allowed it to come, but he has never coerced, forced, or caused anyone to sin. The closest God ever gets to being involved in sin is bringing a temptation along in our path to see what we'll do with it. For instance, Genesis 22.1, it said God tempted Abraham. Right. Now, I just quoted from James 1 that God never tempts any man. But Genesis 22 says God tempted Abraham. Bible skeptics say the Bible's just full of contradictions. 
Bible believers say these two verses can easily be reconciled. James 1 is saying God never puts in man a lust for sin. He doesn't have to. Do you think there's something you wouldn't do if God withdrew His grace from you? What do you think you wouldn't do? Don't even think about it. Because do you know what? He just might want to prove to you your depravity while you're here. You have enough evil in your heart to do anything if He withdraws His restraining grace. He does not put the evil desire for sin in anyone. But what did he do to Abraham? He gave him one horrible test. I want you to take your son Isaac and offer him for a burnt sacrifice. Your only son Isaac. That was a horrible test. That was a temptation. You know, when David went and walked on his rooftop when he should have been off fighting a battle, I'm not a bit surprised that he saw Bathsheba taking a bath. Anyone in here surprised by that? No. The Lord God brought a temptation into the path of David to try David. God didn't put any evil desire in his heart for that. There was plenty of evil desire in David's heart already for that. God just brought along a situation. Now, David, what are you going to do with that? And that is our life. Do you know how I, Jesus taught us to make this prayer? Lead us not into temptation. Now, do you understand those words? God does not tempt any man by putting evil desire in our hearts, but he can certainly arrange circumstances where we would be tempted to sin. Therefore, Jesus said, pray that we're not led into temptation. To a child of God, there hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man, but God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape. Amen. He is totally fair. He has never coerced anyone to sin. Free will. I read to you this morning from the Council of Trent. Let me read it to you again. If anyone saith that since Adam's sin, the free will of man is lost and extinguished, or that it is a thing with only a name, yea, a name without a reality, a figment, in fine, introduced in the church by Satan, let him be anathema. Now that's the Roman Catholic Church hearing our preaching service this morning and writing an anathema against it. And the way they heard our preaching service this morning is because we've had faithful brethren that have gone before us that preach the very same thing, and they despise the God of free will. The free will Baptists have this in their confession of faith. The human will is free and self-controlled, having power to yield to the influence of the truth and the spirit, or to resist them and perish. And upon that foundation, most of modern Christianity rests its hope of eternal life. That the human spirit is free to yield to truth and the spirit of God, or it's free to yield to sin and temptation. Billy Graham has written, and these are quotes, The Holy Spirit will do everything possible to disturb you, draw you, love you. But finally, it is your personal decision. He gives the Holy Spirit to draw you to the cross. But even after all of this, it is your decision whether to accept God's free pardon or to continue in your lost condition. This can be accomplished when free will is exercised. That's Billy Graham. See, they all, they're all happy buddies. That's why Billy will go meet with the Pope. They're all happy together. They can all get in the same stage. They can all go to Promise Keepers together. They can all sit and hold hands at Bill Gothard's seminars because they all believe the same religion. It's the free will of man is the foundation for what they believe. 
free will must be assumed about man because their theology is God is required to love the human race because there is something intrinsic in all of us that deserves his love. We are so special and precious that God so loved. Now, when they read that, they do not understand that little adverb so to be defining and limiting the love by the rest of the sentence, but meaning, for God loved the world so very much, which is not what it is saying. It says, for God so loved the world because it's defining what he means by that. It's the ones that get eternal life, the ones that he gives eternal life to. They believe that God loved all men equally. They believe that Jesus Christ died for all men and all their sins equally. And the Holy Spirit puts forth the same degree of effort in all men equally. That is what they believe. That's a free will Baptist. And that is every Baptist almost today. They hold that. And therefore, what is the crucial issue in a salvation of a sinner? His free will. What will a man do with that great love of God the death of Jesus, and the workings of the Holy Spirit. What will a man do with it? And so that's where they get their doctrine of free will. Man is free to accept those things and be saved, or man is free, and he can choose either one to accept them or to reject them. But the Bible doesn't teach that whatsoever. The Bible teaches that we are totally depraved, and I'll get to it in just a moment, and our will would never choose God. It didn't in Eden, and it hasn't ever since unless God gives us a new will. You know, the Apostle Paul called the religion of the Pharisees in Colossians chapter 2, will worship. Anyone ever read that before? Do you know that's in your Bibles? In Colossians chapter 2, at the end of the chapter, the will worship he was talking about there is the self-denial and all the little things the Pharisees were good at. And he says they believe in will worship. Well, if the Apostle Paul could play with their theology that way, I want to play with everyone else's the same way. They believe in will worship. The way that they get to heaven is by worshiping the human will. It's not the love of God that gets men to heaven because the ones in hell were loved just as much. It's right. not the death of Christ that gets men to heaven because those in hell, Jesus died for them and all their sins just as much. It wasn't the work of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit applies his conviction, his drawing, his, what was that, disturbing his disturbing to all men. Listen, you can't disturb a dead man. You punch him in the side, and it's just like punching a big sack of jello. You, you knock him off, you knock him off the bed onto the floor, he's just gonna hit with a thud. You don't disturb a dead man. You have to give him life. And God gives life by his will to give life to men. Amen. The first evil exercise of a free will in this universe was of Lucifer. What were his words? I will be like the Most High. I will. There was the first exercise of a free will. Satan was made a rational creature, the highest order of the angelic beings, and he was given the ability to make choices. And he made a choice against God. Now, God was not surprised. God was not surprised. And do you know what is so painful? Don't, do you understand how depraved your heart is when any one of us gets up here and says something about the fact that God chose to make men and angels to send them to hell for his own honor and glory, that is repulsive to something inside us because we all believe we deserve something better than that as a race. But see, no one ever gets all upset about the devil. Why don't they get upset? About, and I, you know I've said this to you so many times. 
but because I want you to think. Why don't people get upset about the devil? Why don't they feel sorry for him? Because they really don't care about the character of God, and they really aren't measuring their worth in the universe, because he's worth far more. But they don't care about him. All it is is a hatred inside of us for a God that's in charge, for a God that rules. There is hatred. Listen, we all had our chance. Do you want to talk about a chance? He didn't leave your eternal destiny up to someone as dumb, as rebellious, and as depraved, and as profane as you are. He gave you Adam without a sin nature in a garden with one little commandment. Listen, I think it'd be wonderful to have just one little commandment. Don't you? He had one little commandment in a perfect garden. He had a perfect wife. He didn't have kids yet. He had everything going for him. Everything was going for him. And he sinned. He was so intelligent, God could bring all the animals that he had created to him, and Adam could number them. He walked with God in the cool of the evening, and God would communicate with him. That was our representative. Don't ever say, well, God just makes people to send them to hell. No, they all were in Adam. We all had a representative, and he was the best of any of our race has ever been. Better than any of us. But do you know what? We are so proud and so arrogant, that isn't fair. I want the choice. Listen, if Adam went down in five minutes, you'd go down in five nanoseconds. Adam went down so fast. We had, that was the opportunity for the human race. There was a tree in that garden that was not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What was its name? The tree of life. Do you know that they could eat of that tree? We had the choice of life, and we did not want it. And Adam, my friends, was not deceived. Right. He had a naked woman, and he had God. A naked woman and God. A naked woman and God. I'll take the woman. Give me that fruit. And that is what the Bible teaches us. Amen. The Bible teaches us he was not deceived. He did it in rebellion to have Eve rather than God. Right. And you go read what the way he talks to God when God calls for him. God call, he, went, he goes and hides. Now, does that sound like a submissive, repentant individual? Does that sound like someone who appreciates being created by the Most High God and put in a garden of Eden called paradise? He goes and hides from him. God has to call him forth. What have you done? He tries to evade. You've read it before, haven't you? Then he blames Eve for it. Now, does that sound like a good man? What has happened to that man? He is full of rebellion and hate toward our God, the, man, the God that had just created him, because his, he had died that moment when he took that fruit out of his wife's hand and ate it, he had died toward the Lord. We're going to get to that in just a second. Let's get to it right now. There's four stages of man's will. Man's will. God did create man with a free will. Adam had a free will. Adam could have freely chosen to obey God and tell Satan, get thee behind me, Satan, get out of this garden. Lord God, have mercy upon me. Look at this serpent and what it's trying to do to my wife. He could have said, wife, get away from that serpent. Don't you listen to anything like that. The blessed Lord God that created us and gave you to me told us that we would surely die in the day that we ate the fruit off that tree. Nothing like that occurred. He made a choice. He had a free will. He could have chosen. God didn't force him. There was no gun in his head. There was no coercion on the inside. God did not put lust in his heart. He had a choice. And he made the wrong one. 
He made one against God and for himself, against God and for a woman. And men have made that foolish choice many times since. And the Bible warns us from cover to cover about that particular sin. God did create man with a free will and he lost it. God declared man very good. It says in Ecclesiastes 7.29, God made man upright, but he hath sought out many inventions. Man corrupted his own way on the earth. God didn't. God gave him a free will in the beginning. And don't you say, don't you bring up and say to me, but God had already planned the entrance of sin into the world, therefore God's responsible. I'm going to say to you, who in the world do you think you are? Shut your stinking heart and your mouth up from any such questions. Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, why hast thou made me thus? God did not make Adam sin. Adam chose to sin. He was corrupt immediately, running and hiding from God's presence and the unrepentant attitude that blamed Eve for it, rather than taking responsibility. Brethren, what was wrong with him? Hadn't he gone and taken a nap one day and woken up with a rib missing and had a woman there staring at him? What are we going to have for lunch? Can you... That, that God and that Adam, that close together, no, one, no distraction. There were no cell phones in the Garden of Eden. He didn't have to go to work. He kept the garden. He had that kind of a relationship with God, and now he's blaming God for Eve. Why didn't he run out there and fall at his, on his face and beg for forgiveness? Because, brethren, once a man dies spiritually, his free will is corrupted. He, his will is no longer free to choose good. It is dead. Right. When God said, in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die, something surely died in Adam, and it was a will toward God. Now the will was toward self and toward Eve and toward this world. It was horizontal. There was nothing toward God. It was hide. It was get away from me. It's you're not fair. You gave me this woman. She caused all this damage. I'll make my own fig leaves. I don't need your covering. I don't mind being naked. I'll cover myself with fig leaves. And everyone that comes out of Adam is the same way. Genesis chapter 5 says, Now Adam brought forth in his image and after his likeness a son. And guess what you are? You are after the image and likeness of Adam, and so am I. There is within us a raging desire for sin in our old man. It is depraved. It, is, it does not have a freedom to choose and accept truth in the Holy Spirit of God. There isn't a verse in the Bible that teaches us that. In fact, there's many verses to the contrary. So the first stage, God did create man with a free will. And when the best man had a free will, look what he chose. Look what the best creature above man did when he had a free will. That's Lucifer. Look what he chose. So now we're in the second stage of mankind, and that's fallen. When man fell and died that day, he died to any affectionate desire toward God. The Bible tells us that when a man opposes himself, and it's taken captive by the devil at his will. It's when we sin, we, are, we put ourselves, when we are born, we have put ourselves through Adam into a situation where our will is corrupt. Our will does not want to do what's right. It does not want to please God. It wants to choose sin every time. And we are taken captive by the devil at his will. I do not have time, so just listen. And you hath he quickened who are dead in trespasses and sins, in, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. We willingly obeyed the devil, not just Adam, but each of us 
just by our natural birth, we had a will that was not free. Unless you want to use free this way. It was free from righteousness, as Romans 6 would describe it, and it was free to sin. That's all we wanted to do was sin. Ephesians 2 tells us that. How about Romans 3? It says there is no fear of God before their eyes. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. Now, how many does that leave out? They are all depraved. They do not have a free will. Their will is corrupted. Their will hates God. Their will hates godliness. Their will hates the constraint of the Word of God. They don't want to be limited to a woman. They want to have sex with men. And on and on it goes. Instead of the love of children, they want to abort them. That is all within the heart of every one of us if God did not restrain us and have mercy upon our souls. We would be, we would be no different than the rest of the world. Ephesians 2, the Apostle Paul said, wherein we all had our conversation in times past. Right. There was no difference. We're just like that. We don't have a free will. The heart is deceitful above all things. And how wicked is it? Desperately, Desperately wicked. We say, that's a desperado. We used to. Desperately wicked. And that's what we are by nature. Our hearts are not free. The Bible says, you cannot even hear my speech. Jesus said in John chapter 8, 43, He that is of God heareth my words, but you don't hear them because you're not of God. Psalm 10, 4 says, God is not in all his thoughts. The wicked never even think about God. They never think about except to use his name in vain. Of course, you've heard that before. But they're never thinking about God in any positive way of wanting to obey him. That's Psalm 10, 4. Romans 8 Romans chapter 8 says that in this condition we are since the Garden of Eden, since Adam fell, since you were born to natural parents. For the natural man, the, the, the natural man is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Amen. That's what the Bible says. Now where do you get free will out of that? It's because everyone wants to be his own God and there's still that whispering lie from Eden. You will not surely die. And so the doctrine is taught today that men aren't really dead in the way that we teach it. Men are just slightly impaired. And as long as you preach well enough or you have enough cookies for the little children at the summer camp, they'll invite Jesus into their heart. Listen, if I'm hungry enough, I'll invite Jesus in for cookies too. I say that to make a point. Right. That's not, no, no apostle ever witnessed that way ever one time. They never tried to influence the natural man to get the spiritual man to do anything. Can you imagine the folly of that? And yet they're doing that all the time. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I purposed that I would not use any of my human learning or eloquence to preach the gospel. I would simply preach Jesus Christ crucified and leave it up to the power of God if anyone ever believed it. Because men who have their heart changed by the power of God do not need an eloquent presentation. They just want to hear the truth Amen. because it matches up with the truth in their heart Amen. and they jump up and they want to be baptized. Right. Philip's out there bouncing along in that chariot with the Ethiopian eunuch. And he hears a little bit about Jesus Christ, and he says, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? Now, there wasn't an organist there. There was no pie-throwing contest, and they didn't have Jesus rap. Right. All they had was Philip explaining Isaiah 53, and that is a pretty spiritual passage, isn't it? Right. Isaiah 53, that's all they had. But that was enough for the Ethiopian eunuch. I wonder what made the difference. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, a verse you well know, but a verse our children must know. 1 Corinthians 2, 
and verse 14. This is the condition of man after Adam fell. There is no free will. His will is totally corrupt. It is so bad. Here's what the Bible says. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. Now I have made this strong point in the past, and I'll make it again right now. Even the Spirit of the living God cannot influence a natural man to do something right. right. And this verse tells me that. Amen. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. I'll tell you how the Spirit of God gets the attention of a natural man. He makes him a spiritual man. Amen. And we're born again. Right. And then the Spirit of God can teach us all sorts of things. But not until a man is born again can he even see the kingdom of God. This is how men differ in their use of the Word of God. And Jesus said to Nicodemus, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The whole rest of the religious world takes that verse and says, You need to get born again. You need to get born again. If you'll kneel down with me right now, I'll lead you through the sinner's prayer and you can get born again. That's how they use John 3, 3. But do you know what the verse is teaching? Except a man be born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. So how are we going to pray about something you can't even see and you don't even have an interest in? It's a Jesus is giving a lesson that the kingdom of God is invisible and out of the sight and out of the reach of all men unless they're born again first. But they totally corrupt that theology. Look at this verse. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them. Notice, it is a function and a matter of ability. Neither can he. Remember, in using may I or can I, do you remember? Can is a word of ability. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. A natural man hears a sermon like this, his eyes are just dong. Closing down, his mind's in 13 different places. He's sweating, he's itching, he's, he's just so uncomfortable sitting there. He has to get out of here and get home, turn the TV on, and blow all that out of his mind. And 99% of the world is made up that way. They're natural men. They don't have one bit of care about the things of the Spirit of God. They cannot know them. They are spiritually discerned. A man must be born again first. Then he has a free will restored by the power of regeneration. And he is free to choose righteousness, and he's free to choose sin again. But when he's in his state of death, God must regenerate him first. And he does. And how does he regenerate him? John 1.13 says, which were born. Let's find out how a man is born again. Is it like this little sinner's prayer that I just made fun of? No. Let's try John 1.13. Which were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. How are we born again? By God. It does not involve our will. It does not involve your will for me. And it doesn't involve my birth. It involves God's will for me. And that is what we believe, brethren. And children, that's what we believe. God has to reach down and make a choice in your individual life and give you a new man in order for you to even understand and appreciate the things of the Word of God. If he doesn't do that, it's just foolishness to you. You sit there politely, waiting for me to finish so that you can go home. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. There isn't a thing the Spirit can do, nor that we can do, to influence a natural man. He has to make us a new man first. 
And then we have a free will restored. Do you know what the Bible says in Philippians 2.13? It says, For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Isn't that wonderful? Some, someone restored my ability to will good things. Do you know that verse? Look at it with me. Philippians 2.13. Will not take too long. Too long is a subjective definition. That's right. You might have one and I'll have another one. Amen. Philippians 2.13. For it is God. Look at this verse. This is what we believe. We don't make this our hobby horse, but boy, when we get on it, it's a nice horse. And I like riding it. Because it's the truth of God's word. Philippians 2.13. For it is God. It is God which worketh in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. How do you ever will have a will toward God? It's because God worked it in you by giving you a new man. Until God does that work, you don't have a will in you to do the good pleasure of God. In fact, Romans 8 said, it is impossible. They cannot please God. Romans 8, 7, and 8. But here we are after we're born again. God's worked in us a will in which we can choose to please God. And Jesus would say to his disciples, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And that's what we live. Do all of you understand that expression totally? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I know everything that I ought to be doing. Do you? I know everything that I ought to be doing, and I want to do it. I want to do it very much, but the flesh is weak. I look at those disciples sleeping over there, and while last Sunday a may got down on them a little hard, I know that I'd be over there with them. And, I'm thank, and I thank God for his mercy Amen. that even sleeping disciples he came and woke them up for the third time. And he said, it's past now, come with me. And he went on to the cross of Calvary for their sins, including their sleepiness when it was time to pray. I'm thankful for that. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. There's our condition. We have a new man that is willing toward God, but we have this flesh dragging it down. The apostle Paul wrote a whole chapter about it. Can anybody help me with the chapter? It just slipped my memory. Romans 7, yes, Romans 7. The things that I would, I do not. The things that I hate, that I do. And he goes on and on explaining his dilemma of this warfare because he now has a free will that wants to choose God and a flesh that pulls him off his path over and over because the flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh and these two are contrary, the one to the other, Galatians 5, 17. Right. And God made choice to leave us in this predicament because we're going to get right excited about heaven Amen. when we are delivered from this corruption. Amen. Because that's the fourth state of man that's coming. We will have a free will in the, in the sense that God has a free will. It will be free from ability to sin. It will be free from the presence of sin. We won't even think about sin. Right. Now does heaven sound exciting? Amen. I remember as a child, you get excited because there's gold on the streets. Then when you get a little older, you get excited because I'm going to get a crown. I'm going to get to wear a crown. And then you get a little bit older and you go to a funeral and you say, Grandma's going to be there. Grandma's going to be there. Then you get a little bit older and you say, but there's not going to be any sin there. And you get real excited. Then you say, Jesus Christ is going to be there. And you know what? You're making spiritual progress in your thinking about heaven. Right. You want to be there because Jesus is there and there's no sin there. Because you know that without sin, you could really please God. 
if I didn't have my flesh, I could really, I could really do some things for the Lord. Because I would burn my, I know what my spirit wants to do. What, isn't yours the same as mine? Isn't your spirit just flaming to want to please the Lord? If, as soon as I can drop this carcass, I'm going to be there. By the grace of God, not by my power, but by what he put in me. Just like the Apostle Paul would say, yet not I, but the grace of God that, was with, that is with me. So we have four states of man. Man was free to fall. Man is then free from righteousness. Man is then free to righteousness, which is what we are right now. And then we're going to be free from falling. Now that's exciting. Freedom from falling. If you want to say free will, man had free will in the Garden of Eden. After that, he lost it. He was free only to sin. After we're born again, we're free to live righteously and to choose things that please God. And soon we'll be free from falling because all we'll do is choose those things that are pleasing to God. Romans 9. Romans chapter 9. Do you think the will of God is mentioned in this passage? And do you think the will of man is mentioned in this passage? Romans chapter 9. I'm just going to read it and quick. I'm just going to stop when I see something that you need to focus on as we're reading through it. I'm going to begin at verse 15. Romans 9, 15. And let this passage answer the anathema of the Roman church, the confession of faith of the free will Baptists, and Billy Graham's poor conversation about how people are saved. Romans 9, 15. For he saith to Moses, this is not something new Paul came up with, but this is found in the Old Testament as well. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Now would you please tell me what will is involved in getting the mercy of God? The will of God. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. It is my choice who gets mercy. God says, I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Whose will is involved in men having compassion from God? God's will. It is God's choice to show compassion to men. Verse 16, we can now conclude something from that 15th verse. So then, so then as a conclusion, we can conclude something about our theology and about our doctrine of salvation. So then it is not of him that willeth, it's not up to a sinner's will, nor of him that runneth. It's not up to the sinner's exertion or doing any number or quality of works. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. Amen. With those two verses, they are so plain and they are so consistent with the rest of the Bible. The mercy and the compassion of God is dependent upon his choice, not the sinner's choice. Listen, when God has shown his mercy and his compassion to us, we then choose God willingly because God puts that in us. He works in us to will and to do of his good pleasure, as we read in Philippians 2.13. Verse 17, for the scripture, now we're going to get an illustration of it. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for this same purpose have I raised thee up. Pharaoh, I want you to know something. You are 36 years and 7 months and 12 days old, and I want you to know why and how you have lived that long. 
I want you to know why, of all your brothers, you were chosen to be Pharaoh of Egypt. I want you to know why, in every military campaign you've had, you were successful and survived and were brought home safely. I want you to know why, though there were miscarriages among the other, the other wives of the priests of your father, you survived. I want you to know why you lived and why you grew and why you became Pharaoh. Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Amen. No one else believes that. When I say that, I mean that in a general way. There is hardly anyone else that believes that. They do not want to believe that a God would take Pharaoh and raise him all the way up for one purpose. Do you know why Pharaoh existed? For God to get glory and for you and me to get excited about the Jehovah God when Pharaoh's wheels came off his chariot in the midst of the Red Sea and he stained his royal tunic and he drove his chariot furiously as it was dragged along the bed of the Red Sea on its axle. Right. This is the blessed God of the Bible. Amen. If you don't like this God of the Bible, there's a cotton candy God that's out there in 400 Baptist churches in Greenville County. They will tell you about a cotton candy God that wouldn't ever do anything against your will. I'm thankful there's a God of the Bible that did a whole lot Amen. against my will. Amen. Because if he had left, my, he left me to my will, I'd have chosen hell. Right. In fact, I did. I did more than once. I did more than twice. I'm thankful that he saved me against my will. They are so ridiculously confident in their own righteousness to ever say anything like that. If he doesn't save us against our will, we're lost. Right. We're worse than Adam. But look at this passage. Do you realize the man Pharaoh, do you know why he got good grades in school so that he could be promoted to become Pharaoh of Egypt? Yep. God raised him up. He was blessed all his life. Everything he did worked out well so that he would get to the throne so that God could dash him down so that God could show his power. Amen. You say it's not fair that God would create a man just to show his own power in that man. We're getting to that, the answer to anybody who even thinks such a thing. Right. But I want to dwell on this for you to realize that Pharaoh was a real man. He had love in his life. He had hopes and dreams and ambitions in his life. He was a real person, but that real person in comparison to God is nothing because Nebuchadnezzar says all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, and that includes the kings of Egypt. Let me tell you about my Savior. They want to put him in a manger. They want to put him at Mary's breast, and they want to hang him on a crucifix. Let me tell you about my Savior. He has a name. It's on his thigh, and it's on his vesture. Do you know what my Savior's name is? that's on his thigh and on his vesture? King of kings. Lord of lords. Do you know what everyone addressed Pharaoh as in his court? My Lord. My Lord. Backing out. My Lord. My Lord. I want to tell you something about my Savior. He's not in a manger. He's not at Mary's breast. And he's not hanging on a crucifix. He's coming on a white horse. And his name is Lord Amen. of Lords. Right. And you know what? Pharaoh got to meet him. Pharaoh met him. His tunic was messed. The chariot was on its axle. The water was quivering on both sides. And he met him. The one that he had said, who is the Lord? That's right. He met him. My Savior and your Savior is King of Kings. Right. 
He is called the King Nebuchadnezzar unto all peoples, nations, and languages. That king learned that there is another king, and that king was the greatest king. And he said, Now I praise and extol him that the high king of heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. I got to tell a little boy, I'll forget, he's a young man in prison about that Savior this past week, because that's someone that you can put your trust in that is going to deliver you. Amen. That Savior is so powerful, he speaks and men live. He says, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead staggers out in his grave clothes. Amen. And brethren, the last day is coming when he's going to open his mouth and say, live, and everyone is going to come up out of the ground. Every cemetery is going to be one exploding bunch of soil as every one of the righteous and the wicked will come forward to stand before him. He is king of kings and lord of lords. Do you love him tonight? Amen. Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up. I made you the greatest king that I could so that I could show that I'm king of kings that my name might be declared throughout all the earth, and I just did that because of Pharaoh. On the other side of the earth, he mercy on whom he will have mercy. Right. And whom he will, he hardeneth. Yes. You're kidding. I don't mind God saying that he chooses to have mercy on whom he chooses to have mercy, but do you mean he chooses to harden some men? Yep. Now, does that mean he made them sin? No, no he didn't. He just withdrew his restraining grace and let them have their own way. Pharaoh did not want to submit to a little shepherd named Moses. Pharaoh did not want all of his workmen taken away that were building him his pyramid where he could be buried when he died. God did not make Pharaoh sin. God just withdrew his restraining grace. And brethren, all he has to do is withdraw his restraining grace and we will do anything. He withdrew himself from Hezekiah. The Bible says God left Hezekiah to see what was in his heart. And immediately Hezekiah took the ambassadors from Babylon and showed him all the treasures of Jerusalem. God withdrew himself from David. Our brother David. God withdrew himself from David for just a moment. And David numbered Israel. And it cost the lives of 70,000 men. God withdrew himself from Peter for just a moment to let Satan have him. God did not make Peter deny Jesus Christ. In fact, the blessed Lord Jesus Christ told Peter in advance exactly what the temptation would be before it ever happened. You'd think an, an advance warning like that would be enough when there was only elapsed time, elapsed time of three hours, but it wasn't enough. Because when God withdraws his grace, Peter went down like that. And he hardened Peter to all that Peter had promised to do by letting Satan have him. He didn't make him sin. There is within the heart of every single one of us enough to deny Christ, number Israel, chase Bathsheba, and do everything else. And if you have one little bit of you inside that says, I would never do that, you are a fool. Amen. And I don't have any reason to believe that you're saved. Because you do not know what salvation is all about. That's what we're trying to cover this evening. Romans 9, I'm sorry. Verse 19. If we read 15, 16, 17, and 18, up pops this question. Paul knew it. The Holy Spirit knew it. So they, all, they went ahead and asked the question and answered it. Thou wilt say that unto me. Paul is saying, if you hear me preach these first four verses, you're going to object with this question. Why doth he yet find fault? How can God find fault with us if we're fulfilling his will? 
If we're obeying, it's because he's chosen to have mercy on us. If we're disobeying, it's because he's chosen to leave us hardened in our sins. Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Paul comes back in verse 20 and says, you misunderstood me. You're taking the doctrine of God's sovereignty a little farther than I meant for you to take it. No. Did Paul say that? No. But isn't that what everybody says? You know, when men, are, when men that preach the truth are confronted with questions like this, they'll start backing down. You made reference to it. Let's never be ashamed of the doctrine of God's sovereignty. Yeah. The Apostle Paul was not ashamed of it, nor did he apologize, nor compromise, nor modify right now at this crucial moment. You're, you're going to ask me, how doth he yet find fault? Who's resisted his will? Listen, God's holding me responsible when I'm fulfilling his will? That's not fair. And Paul doesn't say, whoa, wait a minute. You've misunderstood me by taking the doctrine too far. Here's what he says. Nay, but. Translated. Shut up. Nay, but, O man. Who art thou that repliest against God? Who do you think you are questioning God? Nay, but, O man. Who art thou? What in the world do you think you are that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Is it fair for a piece of pottery to ask the potter, Why did you make me this way? Isaiah 45, where this is quoted from, He hath no hands. You know, what if a potter made something without hands? It's in Isaiah 45 and verse 7. God ridicules it. The potter has a right to make whatever he wants to. He can make something really ugly. And he can make something really beautiful. It depends upon the will of the potter. And that is the comparison that God makes. This is not Jonathan Crosby's comparison. This is the Apostle Paul. This is the Spirit of God. This is the Word of God. And this is what the true churches of Christ have long believed. But they have left it today, and their God and their religion has no power. They have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. Do you know what kind of power I have put in God and the gospel today? Amen. They have none in theirs. Right. I'll tell you something, the power that is in the God of the Bible, he will not lose a single one that he ever intended and purposed to save. Amen. He will save every single one of them, and he will get all the honor and the glory, and there won't be one small smidgen of disappointment in him throughout eternity. Right. He will be totally and always and perfectly happy because everyone he purposed to save will be there. Amen. Nay, but, O oh man, who art thou? Just shut up. Stop asking your stupid questions. You were formed. You're the creature. Don't question the creator. That's how Paul answered. Right. Your question is out of place. Shut up and sit down. Amen. He didn't say, well, you misunderstood me. Let me polish this up a little bit with a little story about how my grandma loved me. That's how most men preach today. Let me tell you a little story. When I was seven years old, I used to go to grandma's house, and she always had a pie cooling on the windowsill of the kitchen. And off they go. I'm serious. Tell some stupid little story. The Apostle Paul just says, shut up, sit down, and let me go a little further. Amen. And so he comes to verse 21. He says, hath not the potter power over the clay? of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor. Can he look into one race of beings that he created and make some of them to honor and some of them to dishonor? 
And here's what I really love. This is my favorite verse about the will of God. Right. I, must, I must confess that this is my favorite verse. Mm-hmm. Right now, Romans 9, Amen. 22. What if God willing? Amen. What if God willing to show his wrath and to make his power known endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? Amen. They were formed out of the same lump of humanity for destruction. If you say God isn't fair, you're forgetting the Garden of Eden. What if God, willing, you can raise any verse you want to in the Bible, and I will tear it to pieces if you try to raise it in opposition to this verse. If you try to raise 2 Peter 3, 9, where it says that God is not willing that any should perish, I will take you in that text and show you that the context is talking about the believers that Peter was writing to. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish. They want to go into that verse and pull out about five words in the middle of it without looking at the context of it to justify their God trying to save everyone, but nobody really being saved by that God. Not willing that any should perish, that is to usward. God is not willing that any of his elect should perish in the physical judgment that he's warning about in 2 Peter chapter 3. To usward. Because this verse stands. What if God willing? So we've got a verse that says he's not willing. We've got a verse that says he is willing. Well, then how do we reconcile the two? Because the willing is for the vessels of wrath and the not willing is for the vessels of mercy, which are his elect. And that is very simple, but nobody wants to rightly divide the word of truth so they end up ashamed in their doctrine. What if God willing? And then it says in verse 23, listen, these were fitted to destruction. It tells us that some men are appointed to wrath and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared into glory. Long before Adam and Eve, God had already purposed and planned and prepared a certain segment of the human race for glory. They're his vessels of mercy, and he will display on them his mercy throughout all eternity. Brethren, the angels desire to look into these things because they are that precious. There's a revealed will. I'm now out of time. There is a revealed will in the Bible, and the Bible says, Wherefore, be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. You know, I've taught you today about the sovereign and the secret will of God. We've just looked at it here. God's secret will is to whose name will be in the book of life. But then there is his revealed will, and there is much said in the Bible about us learning that revealed will that we might all stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. That's his revealed will, and we want to learn that revealed will that we can please him who hath chosen us in his secret will. That is the gospel. I bring a message that God chose before the world began to save you by his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Will you live for him by learning his will and doing it until he comes for you? Amen. Amen.